Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Lawmakers around the world want to do something about social media, and in particular, content moderation. But what if the interventions they are developing are based on a flawed conceptual framework about how content moderation works, or how it should work? This week, I had a chance to talk to one of the smartest legal minds on questions related to content moderation to explore some fresh thinking on the subject. Let's jump right in. My name's uh, Evelyn Dirk, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate at Harvard Law School and the Knight First Amendment Institute Senior Research Fellow. Excellent. And we're going to talk today about your new opus, Content content Moderation as Administration, which is uh, forthcoming, I believe, in Harvard Law Review, Volume 136, for folks that are going to bookmark that and keep an eye on it. Yeah, I think uh, academic publishing timelines mean that it's, uh, you know, it's still a while away. I think it's November is the publication date. So uh, this is a, a nice and early uh, sneak peek. So this is 82 pages of material. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't I didn't add Apologies. up the number of <laughs> didn't add up the number of footnotes. But how long have you been working on this? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I think this is about a year, a year in progress. Uh, and this is about the fifth draft or something like that. Normally, maybe I would have uh, got this, uh, you know, taken a little less time. But, uh, you know, the year was what the year was. I think all of us have, you know, maybe taken a little more time to turn things around at the moment. It was also my job market paper, for the academic uh, job market. So, you know, it took a little bit of extra love and care. So I want to get into your goals and, and what might happen to you uh, after you finish uh, mm-hmm. your program. But um want to get into the meat of this now. You set the scene for this paper by describing how you think of, of the mental model of content moderation that most people are using and how that works. So mm-hmm. you have this idea of, quote, the rough online analog of offline judicial adjudication of speech rights. So in this model, we're thinking about uh, a set of rules or policies or laws that are applied over and over again to individual bits of content that we post up and that are handled by a bureaucracy of moderators. Talk a little bit about how this model came to be. Yeah. So I think that, you know, when we think about content moderation these days, or when a lot of people talk about content moderation, they do use that model where it's like, you've got a set group of rules that are written by an internal platform policy team that might resemble like a legislative branch of uh, of a state or a country. And then they sort of send those rules out to this vast army of content moderation, uh, content moderators dispersed around the globe and, you know, program them into AI tools. Um, and then those rules are just applied again and again to individual pieces of content. Content. And if, you know, if a user is not satisfied with the decision that those frontline uh, moderators make, you can appeal it up a hierarchy of uh, further moderators um, and try and get the original decision overturned. And I think, you know, this will look very familiar to a lot of lawyers because that's how we think in the uh, judicial system, uh, in the offline justice system of speech cases working, right? Like First Amendment cases, it's got, you've got, uh, you know, your iconic cases where there's an individual plaintiff who said something or wore something on their t-shirt shirt and the state tried to shut them up and they went to court and they go all the way to the Supreme Court. We think about it uh, in those terms. Uh, and I think that lawyers have dominated this debate for a very long time. I think that it's been thought about both inside and outside platforms in academia by lawyers, because it's sort of, again, you know, it looks like regulation. 
And I think that for better or for worse, um, and my argument in, in this paper is maybe a little bit for worse, uh, that means that when you put speech <laughs> in front of lawyers, if you put that kind of thing in front of lawyers, they initially uh, immediately think uh, First Amendment and offline justice system. You know, I'm reminded of this apparatus that Facebook's established. You've right. got policies developed inside the company. Those policies are enforced based on, you know, guidance the company ships off to its outsourced content moderators. The decisions can get appealed. Uh, they've got now this quasi-judicial entity, the oversight board, which can also make the suggestions on policy. I mean, it really does look like, you know, the kind of constitutional system in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I so the argument of the paper is that it's inaccurate. Like that's not actually what content moderation involves, but platforms perpetuate that image nonetheless, even though they know that some of the most important decisions about content moderation are, happen outside that bureaucracy, right? They're about like the affordances you give users or the amplification or deamplification. So they easily could correct the record, but it suits them to perpetuate this image of content moderation as that really limited style picture, um, which is why, you know, when Facebook released the oversight board, it talked about it in terms of like the Supreme Court, right? Like that was the model that it was intending to sort of uh, have this board be in the image of, of like, it would take individual cases, look at individual pieces of content and look at the rules and think, are these quasi-constitutional in accordance with Facebook's values, right? And that's the kind of model that they sort of present to regulators and legislators as well, when they're saying, regulate us, please regulate us, but do it according to this picture. And I think that that's because it's much more limited and doesn't like reach far into the platform and all those other places where platforms are making really important decisions about the speech that we see when we log into their services. And you say this leads to an endless and irresolvable set of arguments that this mental model just doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, I think that this paper is mainly born of a frustration of reading endless stories or tweet threads about individual decisions that platforms made to leave such and such post up or, you know, have such and such a rule about uh, some sort of you know, hate speech or, you know, a certain politician's tweet, for example, which are really, really important decisions. I don't want to minimize that. But it's when we're talking about like individual posts that I think we're getting a little bit sidetracked um, in, in thinking about, particularly because, you know, when you're moderating at scale, this is, you know, now a, a common refrain, content moderation at scale is impossible, right? Like if you're never going to get every individual decision right. So we're kind of wasting our time by talking about individual decisions. What we need to be talking about is, is the level of the system. And so the, the, the other reason why it's sort of misleading is because when you're talking about individual decisions, you know, there's, we're not going to resolve that. Like, that's a fundamental question of values. That's a question, like, we have different points of view. We have been arguing for centuries about the best way to make speech rules substantively. Um, and it also, you know, misleads us a little bit because most governmental regulators won't be able to regulate those substantive questions, right? That That is always going to be somewhat in the hands of platforms. And so if we really want to make progress, we need to sort of look beyond those substantive individual frontline questions and look at the conditions of the platform and the systems uh, that lead to those, you know, they're, they're all upstream of those downstream posts. They, they are all made before a single post is even posted or flagged for review by a content moderator. So you write that you're advocating for a systemic approach to content moderation regulation, which acknowledges that individual errors may be the canary in the coal mine, a systemic failure, but are not by themselves evidence of an inadequate content moderation systems that rectifying such errors will not bring overall accountability to regulators or the public. You also know that this is idea that content moderation decisions are not even really 
in some cases based on content and that we have to take that into consideration. Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing this more and more for exactly the reasons that, you know, we just talked about, which is that content, like the substantive content questions are kind of irresolvable. Like we're just going to intractable. We're just going to keep arguing about that forever. As long as there is speech, we're going to have societal wide conversations about, you know, what's the best way to deal with harmful speech? Is it more speech? Is it censorship? I mean, those are really important conversations. That's how we constitute ourselves, but they're kind of, uh, we're not going to reach a place, a kumbaya moment where we all come together and (laughs) agree that those are the, you know, the right kind of rules. And so platforms who have been caught in this uh, endless cycle have started looking for other signals to, to moderate content. And so they're starting to do um, you know what, I, what I've talked about is behavioral content moderation, where they say, we're not taking this down based on the content of the post. Uh, we're taking it down uh, because of the behavior of an individual or a set of accounts. And Camille Francois and I wrote about this in terms of it grew out of information operations. Like the first time that platforms really started thinking about this was in the aftermath of the 2016 election, because Russian information operations, most of that content wasn't particularly objectionable, right? Like it was Bernie Sanders coloring books in fluoro. It's like, that's not the kind of thing that you necessarily have to take down. But what was problematic about it was the way that the uh, that the actors were working together to amplify certain posts, misrepresenting who they were, um, trying to game the algorithms. It, you know, it was sort of seen as a content agnostic way of m- moving forward. And, and we've seen that spread from simply information operations to all sorts of things about how groups behave, how, you know, so I think that that's uh, swarming and, you know, that was used, these kinds of rationales were used when platforms started taking down QAnon content as well. So I think that's an increasing area of content moderation that you're not going to see if you look at an individual piece of content, right? Like if you look at an individual takedown, you might go, well, that piece of content wasn't problematic. Or if you look at an individual person, uh, you're not going to see, well, yes, they were caught up in a swarm of people that were harassing a particular user. You need to look much more broadly to see that individual post in context. So that includes also these cross-platform or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, government uh, cooperation membranes that, you know, are increasingly at play here. Everything from, I guess, GIFCT on through to the way that Facebook or Twitter or the rest may work with law enforcement. How does that play in? Yeah, so I've written about this uh, in the context of another paper as well called The Rise of Content Cartels, where I talk about these collaborative structures where platforms work both together and with government actors to remove, find and remove content. Right. And in some ways that's really, really good. Like we might think about that as completely necessary to effective content moderation. If, bad actors, which increasingly they are, operate across platforms. Like an influence operation doesn't go, we're going to target Facebook today. They go, we're going to target uh, all of these attack surfaces and and cross post and things like that to be more effective. But also, you know, governments have more information through intelligence services or vice versa. Like platforms might want to alert government actors to things that they're seeing on their platforms to raise uh, awareness about threats. But since the beginning of time, you know, the beginning of free speech uh, thought, We've always been really concerned about government involvement in speech regulation and to the extent that these kinds of decisions are not transparent um, or that they're taking you know, a place on the basis of a government consideration rather than a platform consideration. 
we might think that that's really problematic and it has indeed been really problematic in the, you know it might depend for example of what you think of the government in question and so you know that that i think is something that we need a lot more transparency about but again if a certain piece of content is taken down because a government has flagged it to a platform you're not going to see that if you just look at the piece of content versus a particular rule right that's a system decision a systematic decision about this institution that they've designed such as the global internet forum to counter terrorism the gif ct that you mentioned which is a shared database of terrorist images or other kinds of things like, for example, the platforms and the government uh, working together in the run-up to the 2020 election to share intelligence about information operations. You're not going to see that if you just look at an individual, a, a frontline content moderation, uh, content moderator or the appeal system is not going to understand the real considerations that went into that decision uh, that might inform whether it was correct or not. And I guess there are other forms of, of this delegated decision-making. There's, there's fact-checking and all the relationships with the news media. Yeah. Um, this, again, is increasingly a, a tool that platforms are using because they, you know, for so long said, we don't want to be arbiters of truth. Um, but then they did find themselves in a position because of societal or lawmaker pressure that they needed to take down content based on, based on falsity. Uh, and so rather than making those decisions themselves, they increasingly delegated them out. With This is the most notable example of this is in the context of the pandemic, uh, where they delegated decision-making about what they would classify as misinformation to the World Health Organization. Organization. You know, they're trying to wrap themselves in the legitimacy of these authoritative sources and saying, hey, it's not us, get angry at, you know, the authorities. But in many cases, we don't have any transparency into how those relationships work, how often they're taking down content based on those judgments. Like TikTok will tell you, uh, we work with fact checkers, but I could not tell you, you know, and I've looked hard, how often they take down content based on fact check determinations or how often, um, you know, what they send to fact checkers or necessarily who those fact checkers are all the time or what languages they use fact checking in, right? All of these really important institutional design questions that are, you know, upstream of those final decisions about takedowns, but are going to, of course, fundamentally influence what pool of decisions there even are in terms of leave up or takedowns that moderators might be faced with. So we've talked a little bit about this standard model that has evolved over, I, I guess, the last couple of decades. We've talked about some of its you know, weaknesses. Um, you say all this is important because there are you know, various legislative proposals, regulatory proposals that are premised on the idea of making platforms accountable for their moderation decisions, but that most of these reforms are, are based on this inaccurate understanding. So they end up being more accountability theater rather than accountability itself. Are, are there proposed reforms that you think of as emblematic here? Yeah. So I think that when you think about speech in uh, as an analog, like speech decisions as an analog of offline justice system, the way that we think about, you know, often protecting speech interests in that, in those contexts is through due process rights, which means afford users more opportunity to be heard before a court, uh, give them a uh, reasons for why a decision was taken against them, give them more notice of what the rules are. And if they're unhappy with the decision, give them more opportunity to appeal and present their case again, right? That's how we think about it in the offline justice system. And that 
that's the solutions that the standard picture of content moderation leads to. And we see a lot of this due process discourse, right? Again, because we can't talk about substantive rules necessarily because they're intractable, but also the governments can't regulate that. So they turn to regulating procedure, which is the right move, but they do it based on this false model of what content moderation is or what will work. And they focus on due process rights, but for individual users, right? And we're seeing a slew of like civil society um, proposals that really focus on give users uh, notice of what the rules are, give them an opportunity to present their case, give them reasons for why any decision was made against them, and give them an opportunity to appeal always to a human reviewer if they're unhappy with their decision. And that is found in many, many regulatory proposals as well. Um, mo- many of the regulatory proposals based in the United States, in the, in the, both in the states, for example, the Florida and Texas bills or the PACT Act or many of the proposals on the Hill. But even the Digital Services Act in the EU, which does adopt a number of sort of systemic considerations like risk assessments and, and things like that, still has in it um, these provisions uh, for individual due process rights. And I just think that that is going to be very Illusory. I think that there's no evidence um, that giving users all of this extra information and time to present their case is necessarily going to result in more accurate decisions. I mean, uh, one of the uh, drafts of the DSA says you have to have this appeal system open for six months, right? And like <laughs> six months after a Facebook post has been posted, who like? No offense, but is it really a big value add to be like, are we really sure that this decision was right? Like the world has moved on. Let's let's move on. Um, and I think that idea of like protecting individual user rights is a very limited model of thinking about the influence that these platforms have on society um, because you're not reflecting a whole bunch of other interests. If I, if I can give one more example in here, I think... One of the most useful statistics from one of the oversight board's uh, quarterly reports was a breakdown of the number of appeals that they heard from people whose own content was taken down, uh, that they received from whose people whose own content was taken down versus the number of appeals that they received from people who wanted someone else's content taken down. And the ratio was 20 to one, right? 20 more times uh, people appealed because their content was taken down than because they wanted someone else's. And you can easily see the incentive there, right? You're much more invested in your own content than what happens to someone else's post. Um, And so you're going to be much more willing to go through that elaborate process. But there's no reason to think that Facebook's 20 times less accurate at taking down posts than leaving up posts. And so if you focus on individual rights, you're only going to be protecting certain kinds of interests rather than other kinds of interests. And so when the board in many of its decisions really focuses on telling Facebook, tell people more about which hate speech rule uh, you took this down under, give them more examples, give them an appeal to a, a human reviewer. I'm just not sure that they're really going to be like, that's going to cost a lot. It's going to take a lot more time. It's going to slow down content moderation. And I'm just not sure that it's going to achieve anything. A lot of this coming out of just the way we think about speech, particularly in this country, uh, how we tend to misunderstand the First Amendment, what you call speech squeamishness. Is there another way to look at this? You know, we do think about trade-offs in uh, in many other contexts, in many other rights. So the kinds of things that I was just talking about, about how we might not want to uh, provide users such an extensive process because it's going to slow down the appeal uh, system and it's going to cost, the cost-benefit analysis just isn't worth it, right? But we, so we, in due process rights in other contexts, like the administrative state, that's the kind of 
calculation uh, that we engage in. But that very rarely happens in the context of speech because speech is such a sacred right. You know, the idea that someone's speech right should be compromised for some sort of systemic consideration or that someone should be silenced because somebody else, you know, should speak. That's just not how speech rights are thought about, especially in the United States with the, you know, the First Amendment. If anything, uh, speech jurisprudence is really errs on the side of caution. You know, it says like we can't even have rules that suggest chilling effects uh, and, and things like that. And that might be the right calculus in the offline context. I mean, we can argue about that separately, um, and many people do and have for a very long time. But in the online context, uh, where the scale is such that we have to talk about error rates, we can't talk about always protecting uh, every individual user because you're just never going to be accurate at, th- at that level of scale. Like, I mean, since we've been talking, um, Facebook has made something like, uh, you know, 300,000 takedown decisions, right? Like you're just never going to get those right. So you have to err on one side or the other. And it's not always going to be the most effective to err on the side of caution and leaving speech up um, just because of individual rights. But that kind of conversation about saying, hey, look, we're going to tolerate more false positives in the context of taking down speech. Um, so, for example, uh, you know there there are countless examples of this kind of thing, like taking down. Uh, there were there were examples in the in the context of the start of the pandemic where Facebook took down people like volunteer mask makers because they were trying to enforce a mask ad ban. And, you know, that's they can't get all mask decisions right. And so we need to have this conversation about what kind of errors do we want to prefer? Do we want to err on the side of more mask ads getting through uh, and, and possibly counterfeit masks? Or do we want to err on the side of enforcing more effectively against mask ads? But that might mean that there's some collateral damage. And that's an uncomfortable conversation to have. Um, but I think it's just going to be a necessary one because it's just it's illusory to focus again on getting every decision right. So I'm reminded in what you're describing of the decision that some of the social platforms, you know, take in advance of elections or, uh, you mm-hmm. know, in anticipation of potential civil unrest in important moments where they dial up or dial down certain levers. And that's it. It's always this, this decision between do we prize free expression in this context or do we prize perhaps safety or some other value? In the, in the context of the lead up to certain elections or, for example, in the lead up to the uh, George Floyd trial, Facebook, you know, announced that it was taking what it calls break glass measures, right? Like it was imposing a whole bunch of, it was slowing down amplification on its platform. It was enforcing more rigorously against things that appeared to be inflammatory or false. Um, and it was, uh, you know, like turning down the dial on how much it amplifies things that get tons of reactions or things like that. And they announced these measures and the natural reaction to that would be, well, why don't you do that all the time? Like, why don't you just turn down the dial, make things move a little bit more slowly, you know, stop amplifying speech that's getting a lot of exposure uh, and, and maybe enforce your rules more effectively. And the response that platforms give in those cases is, well, when we do that, we have a lot more false positives, right? We are turning down the dial on a lot of stuff that you might think is valuable speech. But we think that that's the right move in these high-risk situations. We think that if there's like a civil unrest or you know some sort of volatility, maybe it makes more sense to take down things that might be provocative, that might be inflammatory, uh, because the risk is just so high. And whether that's true or not, we need data. We need to get independent verification of those claims. I have no idea. And that's totally unacceptable. 
But that's a reasonable conversation to have. That's a reasonable trade-off. We might say, well, when things are pretty stable, um, maybe we are willing to tolerate more borderline speech because you might also lose some valuable speech uh, if you are tolerating too many false positive. But when things are really unrest, uh, in a state of unrest and sort of on the edge, maybe we want to be much more risk averse and take down things that may be valuable, but for the in the effort of taking down things that may be inflammatory uh, in such a situation. So our risk tolerance needs to change based on context. Um, and it can't just be, we'll get it right all the time in any context. I'm reminded of the challenge we see right now and this situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion and the kind of just dreadful decisions that we're having to make about how to manage war propaganda and other violent content out of that region. Right. And in a context where there's such a flood of it, right? Like it's just happening at volumes that are, you know, just uh, uh, so, so difficult to manage and so hard to distinguish one piece of content from another piece of content. But we're also seeing the real value of a lot of this content, um, even if it might, you know, might usually be flagged by tools that are uh, trained to look for gory content or uh, uh, things like that, you know, this, this content has been extremely valuable, for example, in collecting evidence for future prosecution of war crimes or documenting troop movements or getting the word out about the horrors that are happening in Ukraine at the moment. How platforms should think about their risk tolerance in that context is a really, you know, I don't envy the decision makers, but just to say to them, you know, um, like, uh, every single like you, you need to get it perfect isn't going to advance the conversation and i think it's 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 a really powerful example of how false positives could be really really costly If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. I'd be remiss if I didn't also point out that Evelyn has an excellent podcast with Quinta Jurassic at Lawfare called Arbiters of Truth. Check it out. I'd also like to note that in the acknowledgments to the paper, Evelyn gives a shout out to her mum. If you're listening, Evelyn's mum, hello from Brooklyn. Let's get back into the conversation. Okay, so you're calling for an approach to content moderation that's focused on, quote, ex-anti-institutional design choices involved in creating a system of mass administration rather than ex post individual error correction. Mm -hmm. So you think this, this opens up new opportunities, mechanisms for regulatory reform, because it draws on ideas from the new governance school of administrative law. Now let's, let's back up a second uh, for, for those of us who aren't lawyers. What, what is new governance? Why does it matter here? New governance uh, isn't particularly prescriptive. It's just a label that says, you know, we need to involve private actors in the enforcement of public rights. And I think that should be a fairly uncontroversial claim in the context of content moderation, right? I think we should be at a place where we need to accept that platforms will, you know, 
for the foreseeable future and maybe forever be the frontline decision makers when it comes to speech. You know, they're the ones that are going to be making the substantive decisions. They're the ones that are going to be applying them. But we're also in a place now where we're not prepared to let them do that with like any lack of like complete lack of accountability without any transparency. And so there needs to be a partnership between the government and these uh, these private actors in thinking about how we regulate our public sphere. Now, new governance comes under a lot of attack uh, in many other forums for being pretty weak. You know, the, the idea being that, well, no, this is not, you know, we need the government to set more prescriptive norms for industry uh, rather than, you know, relying on them to make their own decisions. The problem in the content moderation context is we're talking about speech and the government can't make a lot of really prescriptive norms about what platforms can, should or shouldn't do. Uh, And that includes things like, you know, saying to platforms, you need your error rate between X or you need to err on the side of more false positives than false negatives, right? They just, um, that's going to be beyond beyond power of the government. It's going to be unconstitutional. And so we're kind of in a place where we just have to accept that platforms are going to be, you know, making some of these really important decisions uh, that over our public sphere that involve public interest, but finding a way uh, to bring, you know, real transparency and not just transparency or accountability theater to that kind of uh, activity is really important. The contribution of this paper is not just to describe what's wrong with this current mental model, um, but also to look at what you call a second wave of content moderation, institutional design, this framework for making content moderation systems more accountable to regulators and the public may seem like a silly question, but but why is accountability important Mm -hmm. in your view to this second wave? I don't think it's a silly question at all. Like I mentioned that this is my job market paper. So I have had the joy of presenting it, you know, uh, dozens of times in the last few months. And I've uh, been grilled by many law faculty on it. And there are many people that ask exactly the same questions. Many law professors that say, well, why do we care about accountability when they're private companies, right? Like we might often think that they're just private businesses. They're just offering a service. We don't think about, you know, accountability necessarily uh, in many other contexts, although I think actually we do uh, care about accountability for certain safety norms in in many other contexts. But, you know, the idea being like, you know, the accountability comes through the market. They're private actors. So to the extent that we care about accountability, that's where where we should focus. And I just find that very unsatisfactory. It's true that First Amendment doctrine has often said that the First Amendment, you know, only protects against the state, the government's uh, infringements on speech, and that the First Amendment isn't, you know, you know, you have no free speech right against Facebook or Twitter. Uh, they can do what they want. But to me, that's just, you know, it's true. It's just uh, obvious right now that Facebook and Twitter make far more speech decisions uh, in a minute than the government will make on any given, you know, year, uh, perhaps a decade. And so to sort of seed the public interest in that situation, just because they're private businesses, feels unsatisfactory to me. So I think that it's not enough to say, well, they're private businesses. I think the fact that when they have such a huge impact on you know, some of our most important uh, speech forums, that there needs to be transparency and accountability for how they're doing that. So you see this second wave as possibly creating this new opportunity to apply this new model, to think through what, what we could do differently if we kind of change our mindset. Um, h- how do you see things working? If, if, if everybody kind of read this paper and started not from scratch, perhaps, but decided to pursue some of the, the general points you're making here, what does content moderation look like in a decade's time? What does content moderation regulation look like in a decade's time? 
I mean, the first intervention that I want to make is is mostly negative to say, whoa, 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 stop. You're, you know, all of this regulations coming down the pipe based on this false model that I think is going to be a waste of time, right? Like this individual rights model where we're seeing all of these sort of prescriptions for, as I was saying, individual appeal rights. Uh, and I want to, you know, say that is a false model. That's, that's going to be ineffective. And that's going to be, you know, you're going to entrench a, a model of, cons- uh, of content moderation that suits like the Facebooks and the YouTubes of the world just fine. Uh, they are, in fact, advocating for that. Um, and it will entrench the dominant platforms and the dominant way of review. Uh, then the second thing is say, okay, so so what? So what should we do instead? And, you know, there is a need to do something, but that doesn't mean we should do something, you know, sort of ineffective. So it's, it's worth taking a moment to pause. I want to get away from that like individual ex post model of like, let's look at what happened in the, in the content moderation, the downstream things, and think about upstream ex-ante decisions that platforms make that create that universe. So I I talk about a number of different measures uh, in that that talk about institutional design, uh, both structural mandates and procedural mandates. So, for example... Separation of functions is one of the things that I talk about. And that that looks at, for example, I think one of the biggest discontents that people have with content moderation at the moment is the platforms say they have these rules and we're not necessarily sure that they're applying them in practice. We have no idea whether they are you know, actually interested in the neutral application of rules. And indeed, based on a lot of reporting, in particular with respect to Facebook and in the Facebook files, uh, it's, it's come to light that you know, the content moderation team, the content moderators, will come to a certain decision with respect to some content and another arm of the company will interfere with the enforcement decision, right? Whether it's a government lobbyist or growth uh, teams who are, you know, interested in their own incentive structure. They're responding to their own incentives, but they're not aligned with the application of content moderation rules. And you could think about correcting that ex post, right? Like you could think, okay, well, they've interfered. There's bias in that enforcement decision. The decision's wrong. Let's give them an appeal, right? Let's give them more notice and, and we'll fix it on appeal. But that just seems both slow and ineffective. And you're only going to have a small pool of like an arbitrary pool of the kinds of people that will go through that process of appeal. So I think it's more effective to try and prevent that bias from infecting the process upstream ex ante and say, look, let's just put a wall between those decision makers who are responding to certain kinds of incentives and those decision makers that are responding to the incentive to enforce content moderation rules. And we see that in lots of lots of areas of the law and lots of regulation. We see that in banks. We see that uh, in the administrative state where we say you can't have people who have one kind of incentives interfering in the enforcement decisions of another of the business. So you talk about some specific things that you want to have happen. You want annual content moderation plans and compliance reports. And I do believe some of those ideas are are in some current Mm -hmm. legislative proposals, quality assurance and auditing, um, the idea of aggregated claims. And then you you lay out some ideas around enforcement. Yeah. So, I mean... we are definitely seeing uh, regulators moving uh, to these kinds of models much more. Like I mentioned, the Digital Services Act before that focuses on these uh, these risk assessments, uh, these sort of plans that say, you know, tell us what you're going to do in and ha- what your rules are, how you're going to enforce them, and what risk factors there might be to the effective uh, enforcement of those plans. Now, the DSA ties that to substantive outcomes, like substantive risks to society, and I have concerns about that because. 
uh, how we, you know, evaluate the risk that certain speech might have to society is like a really difficult question. And I think would be unconstitutional in the United States to pass that kind of legislation. But to focus on risk assessments to the effective enforcement of a platform's own rules, I think is much more feasible. And I think, you know, this is an incremental measure. It's admittedly sort of a modest proposal, uh, but I think it gives us the tools that, you know, it can be a midway to maybe future more prescriptive rules um, or industry standards, right? But we're still learning so much about how uh, these platforms work and what works in terms of interventions as well. Like some of my favorite examples are around nudges and friction that platforms are implementing that, you know, platforms could say as part of their risk assessment plans, you know, one of the things that we're doing to make sure that uh, we are effectively enforcing our disinformation or misinformation policies is prompting users to be more thoughtful in what they're sharing. And Twitter has some fantastic stats here. My favorite is that um, when you go to retweet an article that you haven't read, a little pop-up comes up and says, hey, (laughs) do you want to read this article before you retweet it? And you can totally override that. It's like a totally gentle nudge. Um, But Twitter says that 40% more people click through and read that article before they click the retweet button. And that's awesome. Like, that's really, really cool. And that seems like an effective measure that maybe other platforms should consider. But I think it would be a mistake to regulate, to impose that by ma- uh, by uh, in legislation right now, because every platform is different. Like, most platforms don't have a retweet button. Uh, we don't know if that'll still be the most effective measure in five years. We don't know, you know, whether it'll be the same effectiveness on different platforms as it is uh, on Twitter. We don't know whether that'll be entrenching a kind of model that other platforms, you know, will be too expensive for them to comply with and will be anti-competitive, all of those sorts of things. So I think that kind of ex-ante transparency about like the affordances and different experimentations that platforms are taking uh, could, you know, increase the pool of knowledge that we have as outside observers and regulators have uh, as an incremental mid-step beyond maybe being more prescriptive in the future. So you talk about this virtuous cycle of regulatory public industry learning. Now, I'm, I'm interested in these legislative proposals that seem to kind of build that in a little bit, um, mm-hmm. thinking a little bit about the the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act that uh, yeah. Lori, uh, Jahan, and Adam Schiff, and Sean Kasson, uh, all representatives in Congress, introduced. Are, are there bits of that legislation or other legislative proposals in the states that you regard as positive or optimistic with regard to this framework you're proposing? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think that that bill in particular does reflect a lot of the similar kinds of ideas that I talk about in this paper. And I think, you know, I was looking at it and I think it's, you know, it has things like the complaints mechanism that I talk about in my paper. They have whistleblower protection. Um, They do have these like risk assessment measures and they are really focusing much more on those ex-ante decisions, which I think are are really important. And I think, you know, reflects many of the ideas as well in the, like, I mean, the name is even close to the Digital Services Act in the EU. So I I do think that's uh, really important. I think there's a lot of really encouraging stuff in there, but I do think that the standard picture that we talked about right at the beginning is still kind of inherent to this model. And you can see, for example, in section five of that bill, um, that they're still talking about that appeal system that we mentioned at the beginning. And they say for a period of at least six months, uh, they need to have this internal complaints handling system open to the user um, that gives them notification or opportunity to appeal and things like that. That again, I just think is a misdirection, uh, would be an, an ineffective 
effective way of holding these systems to account. And I think um, the, including as well the transparency reporting that that then imposes, which says, uh, tell us how many pieces of content you took down and things like that, which, you know, those transparency reports are not cheap to produce. And uh, Facebook and, and YouTube love them. They write op-eds in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal saying, yes, we really think this is very valuable and you should impose this on all companies. Um, but I've read like so many of these reports right now. And I can't tell you, I'm not none the wiser about the health of the information ecosystem or the effectiveness of Facebook's enforcement of its rules uh, due to these like reports of how many individual decisions they took down. So I, I think there's a lot promising in there. And a lot, I, I do think these ideas of like ex-ante risk assessment and institutional design, we're, we're starting to see them much more in the legislative models that are coming out now, rather than the ones that we had three or four years ago, even, you know, the, the net DG in, in, in Germany and things like that. But uh, but I do think that we still need to move away from this prioritization or this, you know, fundamental protection uh, of, of user rights, individual user rights. With just the couple minutes we've got left, I want to just zoom back out. Um, you know, reading this, I, I was thinking to myself that, you know, uh, clearly this is all premised on a sort of body of thought and a body of law within a kind of Western democratic mm -hmm. context. Um, mm -hmm. There was one paragraph in particular where you wrote, uh, constitutional obstacles aside, the sheer scale, speed, and technological complexity of content moderation means state actors could not directly commandeer the operations of content moderation. This is a descriptive, not normative observation. The state simply does not have the capacity to assert platforms as the front line of content moderation. Mm -hmm. Yes, here, right? And of course, in China, we see almost exactly that, right? Where, where people are in fact, even internalizing the interests of the state and, and doing that on their own. Yeah. So, you know, I still think that in many of those cases, it's about strong arming the platform frontline regulators. So, for example, if we look at what Russia is doing uh, at the moment, it's not commandeering the frontline content moderators and putting their own, you know, Russian government enforcement people into making content moderation decisions. It's saying to Facebook, we're going to do X to you or your employees if you don't make your own uh, content moderators make decisions in accordance with our own preferences, right? Now, you're right that China uh, has a much broader infrastructure for, for uh, making those decisions itself. It pays a lot of people. Uh, but I think uh, it also still relies on that kind of strong arming or jawboning, as we talk about it in this context, of the private companies themselves and threatening them with consequences if they don't make decisions uh, in accordance with the, with the government's preferences. And of course, the other thing about China, and I mean, this is sort of sui generis and many, you know, I don't expect the Chinese government to accept my recommendations in this paper. So a lot of the things I'm talking about here are not necessarily for um, every single audience. Um, but, you know, the, the, it, it, content moderation becomes much easier if you don't care at all about false positives. Um, so if you, for example, don't care that you're going to take down a lot of like innocuous posts uh, or, you know, parents organizing child after school activities, if you remove every mention of tennis when you're trying to scrub your social media platforms of uh, uh, evidence of Peng Shui's disappearance or discussion of, uh, of, of that, like then content moderation is simple, right? Like you just take down, you just like sort of obliterate tennis temporarily from the Chinese internet. And, you know, your error rate is enormous, but you don't really care about if you don't really care about protecting certain speech. It's, it's a much simpler question. And that's obviously not the kind of calculation that we engage in in most developed Western democracies. My last question is really just around a kind of technological 
aspect of this. You know, these platforms very much would like to automate more and more of this. They are trying to train AI systems. They're trying to minimize the number of human moderators they have to employ. How does the advance of technology change any of this or change any of the way we should think about content moderation? Yeah, and this is another reason why regulation in this space is so difficult, right? Because it's so fluid and so uh, and changing so quickly. And I think it's another area where our conversation needs to be a little more nuanced because there's broadly a lot of negativity about automated moderation as being really, uh, you know, infringing on user rights and user speech rights. But moderation without automated tools would be a disaster. Like they really are very necessary. Uh, You know, there's other considerations to think about as well, including the human costs of having human moderators look at the worst aspects of the internet all day, every day. And so we might have different considerations in different contexts. For example, we might tolerate errors in certain contexts where the material is so abhorrent and the value of the speech or the error rate is so low um, that we want to protect human moderators like uh, child sexual abuse material might be a good example uh, in, in this context. Error rates are changing constantly in terms of what automated moderation can do uh, and looking for ways to incentivize platforms uh, to keep developing those tools rather than entrenching the way that the content moderation systems currently work, I think uh, is, a, is a better way of thinking about that. And, you know, I think we need to have a more sophisticated discussion about how different error rates and, and equities as well in terms of like appeal rights. So this idea of like always appealing to a human reviewer will necessarily increase uh, accuracy. I'd like to see some data supporting that because, you know, humans are pretty fallible too and humans often make mistakes and human error is like endemic in content moderation as well. And so I think just this fundamental assumption that underlies a lot of proposals and discussion that humans are definitely going to be more effective uh, than than AI or, or even if they are now will always be is, is, is one that needs uh, examining or uh, establishing. And that's why, you know, I think um, one of the things that we can probably all agree on um, is opening up these platforms to get more data. to allow independent researchers access to examine these assumptions and examine um, this, this, you know, this information about what's going on in our most important public spheres is really important. I know that you in your podcast and in your thinking, you you have a similar kind of fascination with uh, January 6th and the investigation of January 6th uh, as a phenomenon. How, How do you think that relates to this work in your in your mind? That was a systemic problem, right? Like I think that thinking about that, I mean, it's 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 a perfect example of how thinking about that in terms of individual posts or individual decisions is is not a great way of thinking about this. I mean, another way um, that that illustrates uh, the argument is a lot of conversations about January 6th and lead up to January 6th happened in things like private groups or uh, spaces where relying on people to flag the content or complain about the kinds of content um, is going to be a pretty flawed model, right? Because uh, they were quite happy um, to be sort of engaging in those kinds of conversations and breaking the rules. So, uh, you know, I think that um, thinking about how uh, systems can be used and abused in advance uh, of those kinds of events, rather than trying to fix it up afterwards, um, where it's probably too late, uh, is really important. Thinking about the risk factors in terms of things that we were talking about before, like collaboration between platforms and government actors, and what might work more effectively in you know future such incidents, and what needs to be to have more transparency around it, I think is really important. It should be a learning opportunity, uh, as also uh, as well as an example of systemic failure. Evelyn, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Thank you. 
That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to Evelyn. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.